When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Don't Leave Me This Way. And today's theme is the church. But before we get into this episode, a quick hello to all our new listeners and, of course, our long-serving loyal listeners. Um, That sounds a bit like jury duty, doesn't it? Long-serving. And a big thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review us. That makes all the difference. And, of course, you can always recommend us too. If you haven't reviewed us yet, just hit pause now quickly. Go on, just do it. Do it. Do it. Go on. I mean, only do it if you're going to be nice, obviously. Um, And one other thing before we crack on with today's episode is to tell you that next week is, drumroll, the 100th Namaste motherfucking edition of the podcast. It's even older than me. It's not as old as me and producer Mike combined, though. Anyway, we've got a cracking episode for you coming up next week with our favourite Namaste motherfucking life-changing moments so far. And it's quite the star-studded lineup, including people like, well, in fact, people specifically that include Richard Osman, Rosie Jones, Philippa Perry, Sean Walsh, Ed Byrne, Colin Murray, Johnny Walker and Deborah Maiden. So that is something to look forward to. Right, back to today's episode and the church. According to a recent survey, 2% of British clergy are unsure whether or not God is anything other than a human construct. It's not very reassuring, is it? And over in the Netherlands, one in six Protestant clergy are agnostic or atheist. You've got to love the Dutch, haven't you? That's why I had kids with a Dutch atheist. He wasn't a vicar, though. Names of historical Catholic clergy include Bishop Person, Bishop Pickle, Bishop Piffle, Bishop Pizza, Bishop Pop, and Bishop Pratt. Easy for me to say. And apparently cat owners are less likely to go to church than non-cat owners. I couldn't find anything out about dog owners' relationship with religion. Hey-ho. And more Americans are members of Amazon Prime than are members of any church mosque or synagogue lovely to see you really sorry about yesterday tuesday that's today's guest reverend richard coles there's a ladder in a church in jerusalem which hasn't been moved since 1728 because the church belongs to six christian denominations and the ladder can only be moved if all of them agree on it The longest and slowest piece of music in the world is John Cage's As Slow As Possible, which has been playing since 2001 at a church in Germany and is expected to last for 639 years. And in 2016, a Sri Lankan church accidentally printed the lyrics for Tupac Shaker's Hail Mary in their hymnal instead of the lyrics for the traditional Christmas carol. Just completely forgot, so my apologies, I don't normally do that, but... Reverend Richard Coles is a former Church of England parish priest and a broadcaster who co-presents BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live. He is a former member of 80s synth pop duo The Communards and a best-selling author of books including Murder Before Evensong and The Madness of Grief, his deeply personal account of life after losing his beloved long-term partner, David, in 2019. The day before we recorded this, the Church of England had voted in favour of blessings for same-sex couples, so we talked a bit about this, and Richard and I also talked about piano playing, ageing, emoting, love, faith, desire, losing David, grief, private education, coming out, 
the communards, Strictly, Addiction, and his beloved sausage dogs, Pongo and Daisy. But I started by admitting that I was a bit menopausally all over the place when we started the recording. Menopause, man. My friend, whose mum died, is in the middle of hers at the moment. I don't think it's exactly helping her cope with the challenges of life. Is this the friend, the friend who just lost her mum? Yeah. You feel a bit like you've lost something all the time. There's a sense of uh, loss with menopause, and I guess there is. Well, we yeah, have lost something. And you have to start. What I know about menopause, nothing but about aging, is that you have to start not regretting what's gone, but embracing what's what comes. I would say that, wouldn't I? Well, I think you you definitely know about grief and loss, and it's one version of that, isn't it? And it's um, I, I put out a, I so. a tweet yesterday, which oddly, you try and do these funny, well-crafted tweets that get nothing, and then you put out just a heartfelt, silly thing, and everyone loves it, about um, having some bad news yesterday, and then bumping into a woman whose coat was like mine we liked each other's coats and she was really nice to me so I started crying because I'm menopausal and I just had bad news and then she started crying she had a newborn baby and her hormones are all over the place and it was <laughs> it was the circle of women expressed my friends my best friend we're both 60 and uh we both have become lachrymose I don't know if it's andropause it was not a thing I don't think but we he came for, he lives abroad and he came to stay with me every new year. And we got pissed and sat up till four in the morning telling each other that we loved each other and crying. Which we would never have done when we were in our twenties. It was kind of lovely, but it was also a bit kind of, oh, blimey. And how was it when the booze wore off and you had to see each other over Eggs Benedict the next morning? A bit embarrassing. <laughs> but I said... When I dropped him at the airport, I said, look, I'm really sorry I splurged all over you. And he said, well, I splurged all over you too. And I said, um, I think I said, but you've just always got me here. And he went, yeah, me too. So it was good. We don't say that stuff, man. You know, we, I do now. I do, I do tell people I love them if I love them now. But it was just the extravagance of the feeling was quite surprising. Do you think there's also a big? You're not. You and I are of the same vintage, pretty much. Um, so we grew up in a similar emotional backdrop, and people weren't yeah. saying. My parents absolutely loved me, but people weren't hugging and holding and emoting, and you just sort of got on with it. And then we all left home and you just left home and no one was like, are you all right? And, you know, it, it was a, a different times. I kind of like it as well. I mean, in theory, I've just noticed that that Johnny and I just are very lovey-dovey with each other now. I don't know why, but we are. Don't mind it at all. I just It's just a bit of a surprise. It never used to be like that. I think when you when something shifts... And you get more, whatever it is, there's these seismic shifts, aren't there, with things that happen to us and life phases and just how you feel on a certain day. And when you're open to whatever might happen in that moment with somebody, like really open and properly turn up, it's quite a powerful thing. But we've had a, we, we have a sort of lifetime that tell, a life that tells us don't, don't, don't let the guard down too much. And when you do, it's quite, I think that's why animals are so lovely, aren't they? Because you could have the guard down. You've got, you're a sausage dog man, aren't you? And I'm a sausage oh, yeah, dog woman. Absolutely. Hooray. Have you got any of them in the, in the room with you? Oh my goodness. What's this one? Pongo. Pongo. Oh. Daisy can't manage the stairs, which so is asleep on the sofa. Is, is Pongo a mini? Well, he is actually Mr. Big Mini. Yeah, I've got a big mini. What have you got? I shouldn't be saying I've got a big mini because that could be taken out of context and uh, from a comedian. I've got a wirehead, uh, a mini, a mini wirehead called Jeff. Lovely, but he's massive. Yeah, so, I had a mini wirehead called um, Foggy, who was the size of a cow. Yeah, he's definitely big. I think per pound, I got good value from the breeder on Jeff, but I would not say he's yeah. strictly mini. Do you let yours go up and down the stairs then? Like I could stop. Yeah, him. it's hard. I worry. I spend my whole time trying to like stop him doing anything that might hurt his back, and then he goes flying up things and over things. And yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. 
and also they're untrainable and also i've been lucky i've never had i've ne- i've had 13 14 dachshunds and i've never had one with a back problem which is very unusual a couple of them have died before they got to the age where they might have had a back problem but uh no, they're the. I mean, Dace is just old and creaky now. It's, she can't really walk very much. Well, she's fourteen, and Pongo's twelve, but he's doing all right. I had a nice walk this morning. Are your dogs very central to your self? Yeah, yeah, they are. I've just rearranged my life to make to accommodate theirs. You know, um, Pamela Mitford, the least famous Mitford sister. Yes. She lived in Switzerland and she moved back to England because she wanted her Dachshunds to die in the Cotswolds. Well, I think for that reason alone, she should be the most famous of the Mitfords. Of course. Fuck you, Debo. Exactly. It's Pam and her Dachshunds. <laughs> exactly. Wow, yeah. that's commitment to the cause, isn't it? I definitely make life decisions based on Jeff, like big life decisions. And he's. Yeah. I treat him with far more diligence and respect than any man I've ever dated. Uh, so not that I'm dating Jeff, but I feel he's got a central place in my heart and life. Well, I've, I've just started dating and... Uh... So much of, you know, when you start seeing someone, you think, well, where am I? What are my red lines here? I don't really have any red lines apart from the dogs. But um, this bloke has just magical powers to charm the dogs. So we might as well get married. So, well, exactly. That's definitely, although my dog really likes people and he's not really raised a red flag about anyone I've ever brought home since I've had him. So I feel I can't entirely judge my dog. But um, how does one go about them? Because you've moved out of your Northamptonshire parish. You've retired yeah. from uh, from your being the, yeah, being the reverend in that parish. Yeah. And you're now in another part of the country. Yeah, not being a vicar. Not being a vicar. So lots of time for first- shagging. well um well more time that's for sure um and also being a vicar is not a job which is particularly charged with eroticism i was going to say that but there are actually people who are very charged with eroticism when it comes to the clergy cassock chasers we call them and there are websites indeed devoted to that particular niche interest but um it's never been something that has particularly worked for me um but Devickering is more than just hanging up your cassock. It's a whole attitude and a sort of change of personality in a way. So I, I've spent the past six months trying not to be the vicar and not smiling at people in the street and stuff. I think you're still and, allowed uh, to smile. I smile and I've never earned a dog collar. Maybe that's God's way of saying that you're a vicar, really. <laughs> so, yeah, do you think that would be a, that would be a reinvention? And so because you you... Well, you've had a, as, as a as a person who's um grew up as a teenager in the eighties. I obviously need to mention the communards because that's the most exciting thing about you, of course, for people my age. And I, the shift for people who like me who knew you as you were and who then know what you went on to be, and indeed now your new incarnation. That's there's a hell of a lot of shifts you've made through your adult life. Yeah. I mean, I guess it doesn't feel like that to be, you know, you just live your life and it's one damn thing after another, isn't it? I'm sure you have shifts in your life too. I suppose my shifts have been, well, caused some, have been notable for their unlikeliness, I suppose, but they weren't unlikely for me. I mean, everything's all going from being a pop star in the 80s to being a vicar, but actually I started off as a chorister. So in a way it was just, I just sort of picked up where I'd begun and uh, it didn't feel, and also pop stars and you know, music and and prayer and faith are not unrelated, actually. So it didn't feel like a kind of wrenching gear change, although I do love a wrenching gear change. When I went from a flat top to having a bit more body in my hair, just went straight for it and uh, startled everybody. I like the fact that's one that stands out when you've done all the other huge <laughs> ones, but the other, well, I mean, a hair change. Well, I've got a new one now, Kim, a new, new thing. It's, and it's a weird one. It crept up on me. Is that... Once I stopped wearing a dog collar, I felt weirdly underdressed around the neck. And I don't like ties, but I've started wearing bow ties. So if I'm dressing up, I'll put on a bow tie. And I really like it. But I also realise that you start to look a bit like Truman Capote. Well, not even that, but like the gay one in a sitcom, you know, the old gay in a sitcom. And I have become the old gay in a sitcom, but I do love a bow tie. And also I can tie them. It's one of my few skills. Can you? Because that's a rare skill. I bet not many people listening right now could boast that skill. 
not only can I type, I can type without looking. Wow. So Where did you learn? Is that a public school boy thing? Do you all learn to do that in about whatever you call year seven? You won't call it year seven. It will have we had a name like oak like tree or something. Rusticus yes, or something. Exactly. I can't really had no, yeah. I think we called it the shelf. I can't remember. But um it had Latin numerals, I remember that. Um I don't know where I acquired that thing, but I kinda know I don't like a ready-made bow tie. I think it's evil. Um so and also it's so easy tying your own, it's easy peasy peasy, and it just looks nice. I like the sort of Churchill raggedy, raggedy, unstructured, you know, being attacked by a moth thing. I like that. I thought you were saying I was being attacked by a moth. No, 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 no. No moth would come near yeah. you if you had a bow tie tied by me. You wouldn't want to take that on. Well, is it um and, and in terms of your so you were a, went to private school, and is there a confidence that come one of the things I'm always I, I also was educated in the private system for a few years because my parents worked in it. Um so I felt like a sort of outsider in that system. But I have had the privilege that comes with it, uh, which is yeah. no inconsiderable privilege, I now realize at my stage yeah. in life. Is there an inherent confidence, do you think, that comes from that sort of education? Yeah, I think it's an assumption that the world is yours and that um, the that the rising arc of your life will continue to take you to places that are interesting and rewarding. I think, I mean, for me, it's a, you know, I didn't follow a traditional path at all. In fact, I've kind of bummed around in London in the early 80s and signed on and lived in squalid accommodation. But I think I always, for me, it was always a sort of, an excursion rather than my life and I think that's what you get with that sort of education isn't it a sense that the world is yours and that means that you are the confident person in the room and that means that people will tend to take you seriously give you the job again it's not something I've been particularly conscious of until I really got to know people who didn't have that in their lives and and then you realize what a what an enormous advantage it gives you in you know the arena because you, well, you and Jimmy Somerville couldn't be much more at the opposite ends of the pole of upbringing and privilege, mm. right? So he, mm. he, his background could not be more different from yours. Yeah. I know that was a huge, it was just one of the things I valued most of all about my friendship with Jimmy was that I just had to begin to try to understand what it was like to wake up in the morning and not think, where is my, the rising arc of my life taking me today, but to wake up in the morning and think, who is this adult? You know, and uh, Jimmy grew up in a very tough working class sectarian background in a tenement in Glasgow. And I don't speak for him, but the circumstances of his childhood and young adulthood were pretty um, unusual and challenging. And I, I mean, uh, when I first met Jimmy, I didn't understand him for six months. And that's partly because I didn't understand his accent. Six months, also because I simply didn't understand why he did the things he did. Like what? And I gradually, well, for example, I have the resources of silky diplomacy. I know how to negotiate my way through disagreement. Jimmy just really did nuclear war. So any disagreement, he would just immediately go to um, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And it was kind of, well, hang on a minute, Jimmy, can we just perhaps maybe just think about it? Da, da, da. So that was an interesting one. Also, his incredibly, I, I have this as a Church of England thing of trying to imagine what it's like to be the other person on the opposing side of an argument. And that sometimes is useful and good, but sometimes when they are plain wrong, it's a waste of time. And Jimmy had a clarity about that stuff that I um, wish I had myself sometimes. I learned a lot from him. What was the main thing you learned from him? Not to make assumptions that everyone's like me, I think. I guess that's the thing about the private school system is when you're in it, it's a kind of echo chamber, right? That's the world you're in and holidays with yeah. the family and the world there. I think it's most egregious in politics where you see that we've been, a lot of our time is governed by elites who went through that sort of system and perhaps do not have as wide an experience. I mean, this is generalising, but on the whole, do not have as wide an experience of life as others. And I think that's often doesn't make for a really thoughtful, engaged kind of politics. And you often hear it don't you, with sort of people who just don't think what you think, you dismiss them as being, I don't know, feckless or stupid or not worthy of consideration. But actually, they're just trying to live their lives like you are, but often with challenges that you can only imagine, if even if you bother to try to imagine them. And it's worth, I always think, you know, when you go into politics, unless they've been poor. Yeah, that's a... At the moment, I think that would sum up what's gone wrong with uh, a lot of, yeah, what we're doing. And how do you feel then when you see, 
when you see these very privileged largely men running the country um and obviously many people who've been to private school do great things in their lives as you're demonstrating but what what do you do you have a sort of yeah what's your response to that well I mean, again i don't want to generalize and there are lots of people who had enormously privileged backgrounds who've done wonderful and thoughtful and and you know very very inclusive things with that and good luck to them and that's great i suppose i think i think what we exhibit now is the consequence of a reversal in social mobility. I grew up in a world where there was social mobility and that people who came from poor backgrounds could access education, university, could find a way into the institutions and the establishment, and they brought with them their life experience and their awareness of that wider world. And I think that made for a creative and exciting and justice-oriented world in lots of ways and I don't see that now I think we see the opposite now this is kind of I think we see a world which is increasingly unequal unjust in which the uh, rewards go uh, are unequally distributed and you just see fewer and fewer people sucking up more and more wealth and I think that impoverishes us all actually apart from the very few people who have Gulfstream jets and two yachts it feels as if we're going I haven't just talked to a guy the other day who who's, who works in the financial sector and he made in 2021 65 million pounds that's more than a million pounds a week and i thought you know what do you do with it and i then talking to him i realized that he was in a world where kind of all his peers also earned 50 million a year or something and so you know they i don't know bought vineyards and rockets or something i don't know but uh he saw himself in a world in which that was your sort of opening bid and that it was normal normal for him yeah no that's not I, I mean, I, this, i'm painting with very broad brushstrokes here but the easiest thing in the world is to justify uh, your pay rise isn't it and you also live to your means and think you're that i remember when all the years i sat in boardrooms and was flying in the front of planes and and staying in lovely hotels for work we i never lived like that outside of my working life we always went on quite straightforward, cheap holidays with the kids because I sort of didn't think I was that person. I thought I'm I'm borrowing this job title, and I'm not going to be yeah. in the front of planes once I don't have this job. So it's it's yeah. it's not me. It's not the core of me. It's it's a thing that I've tried on for size. It's like you and your well, a cassock means a lot more than than sitting in the front of a plane. But it's something I'm wearing and I'm doing. And at some point, I'll shed it and I'll do something. I do else. think sitting. I think sitting in the front of a plane is a very powerful thing, isn't it? And it's not. We were talking about this the other day. Um, you know, you turn you turn left when you get on a plane. What that means basically is you can lie down in an uncomfortable bed for a few hours sleep, which is slightly better than sitting in an uncomfortable chair for a few hours sleep. It's not the most. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to be an experience that justifies the premium that's paid for it. But the reason people do it, and the reason why it does people do pay the premium for it is because it makes them feel better than other people. And that's a huge thing, isn't it? We do love to feel better than other people in one way or another. Well, now they've got the five boarding groups and all I know is I'm always in five. So I'm worse than anyone. I'm like, how have I ended up literally? I thought there were only two or three and I've somehow, I don't know if it's one just for me, but that I just watch everyone. And by the time I go on, there's not even room for my carry on luggage. Uh, so I don't know. I've, I've gone from, that's karma, isn't it? I've gone from front of the well, plane. Well, I say that is them. karma airways. Yeah. <laughs> karma airways invites you to board last and very uncomfortably. <laughs> um, and also, please leave your pushchair at the door. Um, I tell you, I think it's. Um, I remember once because I've had the interesting thing about going up and down. If you see what I mean, so pop stardom gave me literally a boarding pass to Concord, hurrah! And then, so you've been that, on Concord? Yeah, yeah, we used to go on Concord sometimes in the days when pop stars did that. You know, you earned a lot of money and stuff. Or people, record companies earned a lot of money, but. Um, but then I, you know, I crashed out of that. When I remember going, I was with a chap who I was courting and we were going to Paris for a weekend and I arrived at the airport and airily went to enjoy my VIP status and the computer said no. And for the first time, I remember realising, oh, I see, so that was conditional on me actually being in a pop band. 
And now I'm not doing that anymore. I'm no longer entitled to that. And I'd started to think that I just deserved it anyway. And of course, I didn't. I just something that something that came with the job, as you were saying about you know being in corporate life. And then I had to get used to not being upgraded, being downgraded. In fact, well, do you know what I did the first time last year? I asked for a downgrade. I was staying in a in a hotel, very swanky hotel. It was a corporate thing, and I had a suite, and I was showed up and had a butler and everything, and he gave me this iPad which did everything. I couldn't work the fucking iPad. <laughs> couldn't even open the curtains or, or run the bath. So in the end, I phoned reception and said I could have a downgrade. And they said, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, those, um, those. well, you've done it the other way around, I, the sort of bell curve of your trajectory in terms of, you know, early fame, then a life of doing fascinating things, but not so much in the public eye and now fame again. So you've sort of, you, you never went away from the public eye, but you've definitely had a couple of peaks along the way. Well, yeah, and it's up and down, isn't it? Which That's useful knowledge to know that uh, there is no steady state. Well, there is a steady state, which would be um, utter, utter ignominy. But if you can avoid that, then you're probably going to be up and down. And also nature of the beast now is that you can be famous in one thing for 15 minutes, famous in another thing for two hours, famous in another thing for 30 seconds, but they might not be happening at the same time. You know? And only one tweet away from potentially never being allowed on the airwaves again. That's the other risk which you didn't have when you were in the communards. Yeah, but it's different for me because a vicar on Radio 4 gives me a sort of impregnable niceness and I have tried to sabotage my own niceness sometimes. <laughs> but every time I do it by telling some terrible truth about myself, people just seem to go, oh. oh. <laughs> and I think I'm, I'm, I'm awful. But they go, oh, you know. I think it's when you say fuck, it's that I think I don't know if vicars are allowed to say fuck. Well, we're not, actually. We can get done under the clergy discipline measure. And you've got Jesus um, looking on from behind. You've got many depictions of... Uh, Jesus doesn't care about really, it. Really, is Jesus church, down with you know, church? Cares. Oh, Jesus, Jesus is down with got, the odd fuck. Well, it's got. I don't think it's the sort of thing Jesus was really bothered about. Jesus had other fish to fry. I think there are there are things which should preoccupy us rather more than profanity using salty language. Namaste, motherfuckers. Just going back, I will stop banging on about the communards, but um, right. when you went from, you said, well, I was a chorister and I know you were head chorister and that must yeah. always be quite talking of life shifts when your voice breaks. I guess that's your first seismic change and plunge into something different. So that must be, we were talking about menopause, but there's got to be, that's a pretty significant hormonal shift for a choir boy. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, I loved being head chorister and I clawed and scratched and fought my way um, and destroyed my enemies to get there. And I did get there, and I loved it because I had all the solos, and I had a special ribbon with a special medal and stuff. And uh, look at me, look at me. And then by the time you've achieved that, you're actually in your la on your last lap as a treble because your voice is about to break. And there's this lovely, creamy quality to a, a boy treble voice before it breaks. But you don't get it for long. And then you have this terrible moment when you're just about to scale the peak and hit a lovely high note, and all of a sudden it just goes... <laughs> And you get this terrible <laughs> sound and you realise that's you done. And it sort of coincides with the arrival of hair on your upper lip and your balls. And you've got to sort of fucking know what's this about. Um, and most people, of course, advance, I think, reasonably cheerfully into puberty and the thrills and spills that brings. But I think if you are a boy chorister, it's a bittersweet experience. And how did you navigate that then? Because also there's a status drop, as you said. It was your first metaphorical going from the front of the plane to the computer says no. Yeah, um, very, very badly indeed. I think I was wounded in the depths of my acquisitive mercenary soul and then pretended that I wasn't. And um, But it's a good lesson, actually. There were you know, snakes and ladders and all that. But I say that now at 60. I think at 16, I thought that it was a bit of an outrage, really, and that the world has become shockingly negligent in according me the status that I thought I deserved. And that was a similar time then, because you came out at 16 to your mum. Yeah. So was that all a very similar time, the the voice breaking, the... It was kind of wrapped up in it because what, what came with sexuality was homosexuality. And in my day, in an all-boys public school, if it had been known that you were gay, although, of course, there were lots of people who were gay or a bit mixed up... Um, it would have been a sort of unimaginable death, I think. 
And I was very scared of that. So I denied it and hid it and then eventually could deny it and hide it no more and had to tell the truth about it. So I did. And then sort of things began to turn a little bit, but it did take its toll. It was a very hostile world then. And I, that's why I think I feel so passionately about the sort of qualified gestures towards inclusion that the Church of England makes at the moment, because um, it's either wrong or it isn't. If it isn't wrong, then you shouldn't qualify your inclusion at all. You should just say, come on in. I've heard you say that you feel over the years that you've been a vicar, it moved from inclusion to feeling more like exclusion. It's a sharper argument now, although we did have a big sort of, well, some people say it a big win at Synod yesterday yeah. when the church decided to adopt the bishop's proposals about offering a very qualified form of blessing for same-sex couples. Yes, I wondered what you thought marriage. about that, because it's a huge shift, but yet not a shift enough in some ways. It's exactly that. So if I'm thinking it's a huge shift, I think that's great. And don't let um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Hurrah. But then also when you look at what it is, it's not, it's not a blessing for couples. It's a form of words which is specifically not that. But it does open the door, I guess, and it does give me some hope, not only that the church will rightly extend its its welcome to same-sex couples, but also that the church will continue to hold its place as having some relationship to the wider world. And I, I mean, the, I like the Church of England because it is the church for everybody, whether they like it or not. And uh, But to be the church for everybody, whether they like it or not, you need to be in step, pretty much. And we're not in step with this one because out in the wider world, everyone is just used to the kind of utter uninterestingness of same-sex relationships. So to turn it into this sort of exotic, threatening um, phenomenon doesn't accord with other people's experience. And we just look madder and madder. We turn into a sort of homophobic sect. Well, particularly, I guess, given that you weren't able to marry your part, you know, you, you were in a partnership yeah. with your with, with with your partner, who I know you, and, and I'm sorry, David, your partner, who you lost just before the lockdown. Yeah. yeah. So David and I were in a civil partnership because that was the best available. But if we had upgraded to marriage when that became available, if it's an upgrade, um, it would have meant that we would have risked losing our uh, our licenses, our bishop's licenses, which enable us to do the things we do. And we also had to lie and pretend to be celibate, which we weren't, but in order to kind of satisfy the um, insulting and preposterous requirements of the time which was degrading but had to be done so you were put but back in a that. in a closet uh the two of you in that regard not in terms of not being a couple but having to pretend that there were aspects of you being a couple that for some reason which was a legitimate reason had to be hidden yeah and our coupleness was a sort of like an it's, a, it's like we've been to prison or something it was this embarrassing reality that we had to somehow kind of uh live with rather than just the same as everybody else um people loving each other and getting on with their lives together with everything that comes with that, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the light, the shade, just like everybody else, you know, and to be treated as, as, as if we'd stepped in dog shit or something was, was degrading. And I just put up, I put up with it because I had to put up with it. But the minute you stop having to put up with it, you realize what it's, what it's taken from you. I mean, I know lots of people who are obliged to live like that now and good luck to them, but I wouldn't do it now. And how much did it, coincide the loss of David and you deciding I, I'm, I'm not going to be a vicar anymore I'm upping sticks and everything's going to change well I realized after a while that I would have to sort of I could either stay where I was and kind of nurse my grief and, and my memory of David and fill in the hours until I join him in the grave next door um, which he would have loved, um, or I could face forward, stand up and see if there was some more life to lead. And I thought, well, I think I should probably do that. So I did. And then I realised I had to change my life because I couldn't do it there. So I hatched this plan and I'm now living in that hatched plan. Overlooking a church that you're not the vicar of. And don't go to. Yeah. And how is that? waking up seeing the church and knowing I don't have to write a sermon well I think I've been I've been so looking forward to this new lease of life that I hadn't fully thought through what I would miss and actually I really like being a vicar and so I do miss it actually and the other thing is that there's 
you don't realize how it's one of those roles that so identifies you and defines you that when you stop doing it, you think, well, who am I? And I had a very wobbly patch, actually, when the, I just revisited a person I'd been before in ways that were quite surprising, really. And uh, I'm just beginning to sort of settle down now. What and sort of ways? What surprised you? I think being a vicar provided me with a great deal of emotional security and stability. And when I stopped being a vicar, I found that I was a bit less defended against um, sadness and unsureness about what I was doing and desire, actually. And all that stuff sort of came back and was very turbulent for a while. And I kind of thought, well, that's the sort of turbulence that belongs to a younger, less experienced me. And uh, But out of it came well i met i've met someone so i have without without expecting to or planning to i find myself now forming a new relationship with someone which is wonderful um but it was quite turbulent getting into it and how do you i'm just asking for a friend how does one just happen to fall into a lovely relationship at our stage in life uh, any tips you've got hello podcast pedants it's producer mike here with another handy explanation so something weird has just happened. Is it supernatural? Is it divine intervention? Or is it just Callie's really rubbish Wi-Fi? What happened? I think I've got um, Virgin working in the area, which sounds, sounds like the sort of thing that, that's been, that's the story of your life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in terms of meeting, we were at the crucial, I think that was a divine intervention. I was asking how does someone our age meet someone? And the powers of technology wouldn't even let you answer. So that sums it up for me, I think. So how how did you? How yeah. does one? Yeah. How do you meet someone? Well, you have to resolve to meet someone. So um, I went on to a dating app website thing uh, and almost immediately met someone so suitable. It was almost as if AI had kind of brokered our encounter and uh and that's what i'm so we are we're dating yeah and was this first time lucky first person you met on such an app first batch so there were two or three i met and um but he was just obviously um which is very charming and nice and suitable and and uh Anyway, yeah. you know what they say about online dating, so, Richard? They say the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, well I haven't seen the odd goods particularly, but the but it just seemed to have been. Why would you go on a dating website so you could triage all your, your frogs and fast track your prints? Right, precisely. And that seems to be what happened. Well, yeah. well done, because yeah. there's a lot of frogs in my orbit, toads, frogs, very few princes, but I'm going to keep the faith because that's what we're all about on this podcast. And is um in, in terms of the living in the, I mean, you've written beautifully um, The Madness of Grief, which you wrote about the loss of David. And if anyone wants to, the most, um, one of the most moving accounts I've ever heard of somebody losing somebody was you describing those last days with David on Carrie Ad Lloyd's brilliant grief cast. Perfect. I think we've got a slight delay, like we're doing an OB in Afghanistan, but we will we will work around that. Um, so somebody up there does not want me to talk about dating or grief. So we'll take that as a as a as a sign. But I'm going to plow on because I don't take divine intervention as well as some. So your so that the depiction of grief and the depiction of loss. I mentioned that I heard you talking about it on Carrie Ad Lloyd's grief cast, and it was an incredibly moving account. So where are you now vis-a-vis -vis that enormous life-changing loss of only just over three years ago? I'm just over three years, actually. So uh, you spend your first 
the first the, the thing you you have to disabuse yourself of is that you are getting better so i've stopped thinking i'm getting better and i realize that um there are very few useful statistics but one of the ones i found useful is that a lot of people i know who are widowed have said well it's five years before you you're you're really kind of even barely functional again and i'm three years in and i know i'm still deeply um um, dysfunctional in some ways, getting better, I think. I'm probably more or less where you'd expect someone to be. The, the weird thing is, is that everybody wants you to be fine because grief is embarrassing and bereavement is awkward. They don't actually want to think about it. And an embarrassment is such a powerful motive in our interactions if you're a British or perhaps an English person. So they don't everybody wants you to be better and they sort of frame the question how are you doing in such a way as to invite the response fine thank you but it's not fine and um some days it's really tough and i just try to deal with it as best i can and is there an i mean acceptance we know, we know the cycle of grief and acceptance comes very far down the line but the particular situation you were in and the relationship that's David had with alcohol and the fear he must have had of you not being there for him at some point because of that, but you letting him know with words and actions, you would always be there for him. Does that, imp I mean, lose, there's no right way to lose somebody, but you lost him young. Uh, he was 42, I think when he, when he died. 43, just had his 43rd so, birthday. So young. And the massive mixed bag of emotions that any of us have when we lose someone so dear to us. But in terms of that cycle, where are you at in terms of of acceptance that, that this has happened and how it happened? Well, I mean, I think people are quite rude about the kind of Kubler-Ross stages of grief thing. And, and I, I think if you were to see it as sort of linear, that on Tuesday you'll be angry and on Wednesday you'll be accepting, it doesn't work that way. It's much more a landscape that you kind of walk around and sometimes you're in a valley and sometimes you're up a hill and it, it really does change a lot. I think what happens is you just accumulate experience of them not being alive. So I've now had three years plus of David not being alive. And so I kind of trim my expectations accordingly. But it still seems more absurd to me that his that he's not going to, walk in the door, then he is going to walk in the door. There's still this feeling that he's just popped out and that he will come back. Um, that's irrational, um, but it is still sort of... Someone said to me the other day, said, do you think of David sort of existing somewhere? And I went, well, yes, I do. And she said, in heaven. And I said, well, actually in the cohort. <laughs> and I think of him buying oven chips and Marlborough Light and that he's just going to come in with oven chips and Marlborough Light and sort of humph at me as he walks past but uh, I know that's not going to happen it's funny that you've mentioned two still... things associated with smell as well because the, the smell of smoke is so that those smells that you sort of feel you can still smell when you've lost someone again it was a big bone of contention for me and David because he smoked like a chimney and I used to smoke like a chimney and then stopped and now find cigarettes very revolting so we were constantly having to patrol the border of where it was permissible for him to smoke. Um, the little thing that becomes the big thing in a way, it was just a way of me constantly ticking him off, which was stupid and unhelpful. But I was angry with him because he was because he was drinking himself to death and spoiling, killing himself and ruining our life together. So I was angry with him, but there's no point being angry with an addict because it achieves nothing and because they already feel bad enough about themselves and it's not going to make them change their behavior. What I learned was not to be angry and to be as loving as I could. And it was much better when I realized that. Um, and stopped thinking that I could kind of stop him drinking because um, I couldn't, nobody could. Um, well, he supposedly could have done, but he was too lost to it, I think. But I stopped being angry with him, and that made our relationship much better. And he knew, I think, then that I wasn't going to go. I remember he had a—he wasn't very good at therapy and stuff, but he did have a good relationship with a shrink. And he was talking to the shrink one day and saying how frightened he was that I would leave him. And the shrink burst out laughing, and David said, what's so funny? And then the shrink said, well, if he was going to go, he would have gone by now. And I think that was an enormous relief for David to hear. And he's changed his 
pattern of drinking from kind of crazy, crazy drinking to maintenance drinking, which is no less dangerous in terms of what it does to your health, but it does make you easier to live with. There's a brilliant book um, that you may know called You Left Early by Louisa Young about her lifelong affair with, yeah, with Robert yeah. Lockhart, which I thought depicted what she went through, uh, which was not dissimilar to some of the things you've gone through and are going through um, living with someone with, and the judgment as a society and almost us thinking, well, people can make a choice. Why don't you just stop drinking um, as if it's that easy um, and also not understanding the nuances that are there Ooh. for the person who loves the person who's got that relationship with drink. Actually, Louisa is a friend of me and David, actually. So we were friends before um, David died. And uh, Louisa and I swap notes. She's a very inspirational person, and I imagine a very useful person to have in orbit after this. Did you know Robert? Did you and David know Robert Lockhart as well, or is this since Robert that you've known Louisa? No, Louisa and I were members of the same lunch club, and that's how we met, and we got to be friends lunching. And then um, I was aware of her relationship with Robert, and I think I must have shared with her that my fears about what's happening with David and she was just very good. And then um, she came up and she came to see me and David in the pantomime, the parish pantomime, which was great. And we had a lovely time. And that thought that you're um, that it, that that thought that you lose a future when you lose that person, you sort of even though you I guess intellectually you knew that if his drinking carried on, there wouldn't be a long term future and he wouldn't make old bones. But losing that person and then looking at a future that in your case has been so different to the life you had when you were still with him. How, how is that looking at the future and, and what it might hold for you now? Well, the, when they die, of course, they take one of the things that goes with them is not just them, but it is your future. So David and I had this, I mean, it was, when I think about it now, it's kind of a remarkably advanced, costed and set up plan, considering that I think we both knew that he wasn't going to, to perhaps live very long. Um, but that was, nevertheless, it's important to have a plan, isn't it? And, uh, and then when he died, that plan had to go. And we found this house, actually, that we were going to get. And I just realized I couldn't do it on my own. So I needed a new plan. And fortunately, that sort of came along. But it's complicated because you have to, you know, your, your new plan is actually in tension with your old plan. And you have to sort of, there's your conscious awareness of how that all works. And there's your unconscious awareness of how that all works. And it's the, the, it's the unconscious that is the, the tough one because you keep feeling this strange dissonance and distances between what you intend to do and what you had thought you might do and that could be a bit weird sometimes i've really wobbled actually after i moved and i think it was i think it was perhaps because i left the house that we had together and the place we had together and the life we had together and moved into a new life in a new place uh, and he's not here and uh, miss him and that's if we look back even as far as you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs the idea that environment is very pivotal to everything about us and what goes on higher up the sort of food chain of who we are and how we feel and what we're able to do in the world and I guess that very and a very specific environment right a vicarage with a garden with the dogs there was something very very clear about the environment the two of you inhabited yeah, and of course, the the version of our life was partly an act of creative fiction, if you see what I mean. But it was it was workable, and it and it gave us a sort of frame and a and a narrative and a role. And of course, I didn't. David's illness didn't really come into that. I mean, there were people, of course, who knew about that because alcoholism is not a disease that it is easy to conceal. That in our our real lived life in the community we lived in, everybody knew about it because he was so often spectacularly drunk. Um, but that was not something in the, obviously the authored life that went out on social media and stuff. Um, and that became a bit of a problem really, because sometimes the gap between, I think the sort of the curated life that we presented to the world and the actual life that we were living wasn't helpful because it just left, led to a sort of 
collapse of integrity or something or authenticity. I don't know. Um, and I wasn't good with that. But see, with an alcoholic, like any addict, the first thing that happens with that is denial of the condition. So David would not tolerate, could not tolerate anything which spoke to the reality of what was happening. So a fictional existence was um, necessary for him because it kept his addiction um, untrammeled. But that's a huge tension, isn't it? That on top of the fact you're having to pretend to be celibate, so you're already having to mask your own what is authentic and important about your relationship and keep that hidden as well. So there's a lot of layer upon layer of a Russian doll life at that point. Yeah, one of the sort of bitterest ironies about being a representative of Christianity is that Christianity should all be about truth. And in fact, in order to uphold the institution dedicated to truth, you have to tell a multiplicity of lies, really, because institutions require continuity and the continuity that they require um, is threatened too much by the sheer randomness of reality and experience and what happens. So that's tricky. To be having to preach truth and love and when what you're upholding is uh, fiction and meanness, it's really tough. But with all of that, you being a vicar is a huge part of your identity by the sounds of it. So you've got, um, and by the way, yeah. David, on a, on, a, on a superficial note, what a handsome, what a has, handsome partner you had all those years. I, I was look, I was like, wow, he's heart-stoppingly uh, appealing. So um, I appreciate that's a very frivolous thing to say, but just, oh God, you know, no, it's a lovely let's thing. get that out there. Really handsome. Yeah. And, a hot and vicar. So, so, I mean, so. as hot as the vicar in Fleabag, I was like, wow, you did well. Yeah, I'm way out of my league. So the just enormous flattery I felt just by him being interested in me was was wonderful and uh, well, not and out of your enriching. league because you played in the same league. So clearly, you were in the same league. But um, well, I never thought so. I always thought I was the just uh, well, I was old, I was 15 years older than him and a million times frumpier. Well, he just wasn't frumpy at all. So I was just very sort of touched that he wanted to be with me, and he did, and you with him. Yeah. And the, you know, you traded in the perks. Because what are the perks of a dog collar? I mean, you must get free shit, do you, when you've got a dog collar on? That's got to be a good a good way in. Yeah, I mean, pick your parish. So it was very good work because it was kind of country parish. So there were um, lots of vegetables and game, quite a lot of game from the posh people who would leave, leave pheasants and things on the door. And that was great. Um, what I really liked was being part of people's lives and I would baptize the kids and I'd marry the parents and I'd bury the grandparents and I'd be at the school and I'd be at the cricket club and I just really got to know people well and loved them and it was I miss that actually that's what I miss and it's a it's a funny thing because we moan about everybody moans about their job don't they we moan about our jobs all the time but I think it's number one for job satisfaction in one of the surveys I saw so what are you going to do to scratch the vicar itch I don't know. I'm not sure that I can. Um, but I think what I'm probably going to do now is sort of try and concentrate on working out who I am, what the future is, and how I'm going to live the life that's that's happening now. And might you become a vicar? Lovely Sorry, things, I interrupted you, Richard. Well, that's no, okay. I was just going to say that um, there's great things. For example, getting a bit more your life back i mean the, 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 the vicar's job is endless and there's always more you can do and you never know you know it can take everything you've got and to not have to do that is pretty good and i'm doing other things i'm seeing friends which is a big thing because you know christmas easter weekend is when so much of your social life happens and i was always working so it's been great just to catch up with friends and see people and um where I'm living now, we have as a group of us are all old friends. We've all known each other a long time, a couple of newer friends as well. And um, so we sort of live, it's like tilling. We're in and out of each other's houses and we have Sunday lunch with each other and we don't knock when we come in and we sing songs around the piano. And um, we have little sayings that we just say in our little group. And it's lovely. Those are the things I have to say. And as somebody, you you sound as if you found someone wonderful again. But as, as somebody who spent most of my adult life, I've been in and out of relationships, but largely single. And there's something about the community and those people whose houses you go into and sit at the table. And I, I feel I have more of that than most people I know 
because that's been my life. I've operated sort of solo, but within a community of friends and love. And that's enormously, yeah, and those yeah. are the witnesses to your life. I think when you, when you lose that one witness that you hoped would be there. I think what's, and the interesting that's happened to us now is that, um, so we all met when we were in our twenties and we're sort of running around and um, um, having lives of extravagant pleasure and stuff. And then what happened is that we all met people and we all got hitched and then we lived lives of, I mean, you know, lots of us are not, don't have kids actually. So it's not as if it was sort of childbearing, but it was the, the form of life that comes with you having a significant other with whom you live and share your life and stuff. And now in our sixties, um, we're sort of rediscovering friendship again because those relationships are secure and you realize that there are, I think this is bit when you get to 60, when you think, Hmm, maybe I've got 25 years and I'd quite like to, I think one of my favorite things now is just going, is spending time with friends. So sort of, and just doing interesting, going to nice places, having fun and eating and drinking and going to the panto and swimming and just being together and realizing that life, you know, we're, we're on the last third of our lives and we want to have, don't see any reason why the last third of our lives should not be just as much fun and interesting as the as third one and third two. I think if in act three, you've got friends and you've got dogs, that's pretty sweet. I think that's a, that's a, that's not a bad place to be. The difference is you sort of know that you do not have endless time in which to right wrongs, correct errors, um, soothe regrets. You realize that you've kind of got what you've got and you're going to have to live with it. And that's kind of interesting. And that's not always prissy. Some of that is quite dark and some of it is quite salty. And some of it's quite heavy. But you do have these other people and i really enjoy the comedy of life now and the ability to look at everything in your life good bad indifferent shocking and to be able to the thing about these longest standing friendships is that we've seen the best of each other we've seen the worst of each other we're still standing so that gives you a sort of security i suppose and um, to laugh at the comedy of our own ridiculousness and the ridiculousness of everybody else's. Yeah, you've just described my entire life reinvention. They say, don't they? They say a tragedy, tragedy <laughs> plus time equals comedy. And nothing truer has ever been said. Are you still on um, the piano? I, I have to ask you this before I ask you the three questions I ask everyone. So you still do play the piano, obviously, and you play because you played um, clarinet um, on uh, with Bronsky beat, right? So it's you playing the clarinet. Well, only live. If I get the credit for the clarinet on the record, well, that wasn't me. That was a brilliant okay. session musician in New York. But touring with Bronsky Beat, I used to play it, but on the soprano saxophone, which is just like... Okay, so the clarinet solo clarinet, on the actual so recording is not you. That's not me. We'll I wish cut this were. bit out so people still think it is. Don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> and the piano bit. So that piano, don't leave me this way, which is still the dance floor filler, right? I mean, everybody, my my kids love it. Um, that piano bit in Don't Leave Me This Way, how does that, that must be, that's got to have felt good every time you played that. Well, uh, do you know what? I play the song so many times that after a while you stop hearing it, but I'm, I've, I do like the record and there's a big, we did a giant mix of it, a sort of 20 minute mix of it once, which I really, really enjoyed doing. And that was fun. Um, but I've really, I'm playing the piano more now than I've played it since I was a teenager, in fact, because I've got the time to do it now. And I'm discovering, I'm playing some of the repertoire I played when I was a teenager, when technically I was at my best. And I'm not, not technically up to scratch now, though I'm not, I'm getting it back actually, but musically I'm much better. So I'm really enjoying playing now. And that's great. I do it a lot. I'm thinking about buying a new piano, which seems at the age of 60 to splurge on a new piano. I don't know. I'm trying to think it's like the midlife crisis of buying a sports car. There's no point in me having a sports car. But my midlife crisis might be to buy a Steinway or a Beckstein. I'm not sure. Well, I think there couldn't be a better thing to do. And what a lovely future to think of you with the dogs under the piano and you playing. It's also the most, I mean, therapy is great. I'm a lifelong fan, but there's nothing much more therapeutic than the mindful state you get into when you're playing a musical instrument. 
what I like about it, well, I like lots of things about it, is I've found a way of achieving every day a small but discernible improvement. So guess what? If you practice, you get better. And I've got the time to do some proper practice now. So I'm playing a few pieces and I'm thinking, oh, I actually can play this. I actually can play this because I'm just practicing and realizing that one of the things at 60, you're so used to being knackered when you climb stairs that you kind of think that your powers will diminish. But actually playing the piano, um, I find my powers are still there, which is nice. I mean, I made myself sound like Lang Lang, which I'm not. <laughs> I saw Lang Lang crushed, in but, Amsterdam know. recently, the Concert and it was absolutely mind-blowing at not least the encores where just incredible works were played <laughs> i was mm. like God. i mean i'm sure did you do the flight yes. of the bumblebee and uh, i'm still getting did. goosebumps you even described saying him doing yeah it was amazing um and just uh one other thing before the questions i just need to ask you about um so strictly was david what did david think about you doing strictly i think he looked at it with <laughs> pity which was about right he realized <laughs> that I was going to be a disaster <laughs> and that I hadn't figured out. That so you didn't think you would, he but he did. To... I thought I was going to win it. <laughs> um, and I, and he didn't think that. And he knew it was going to be like a plane crash. And um, and he was just very kind and sort of um, uh, picked my body from the burning wreckage and took me home and then put up with me kind of raving and ranting. And he was very nice. About yeah, it's got to be it. a hard thing. I'm good mates with Sean Walsh, and obviously what he went through for different reasons from Strictly. I know a few people have been on it, and it's it's a heck of a yeah. it's a heck of a moving out of the process, even if you move out of it for different reasons to Sean, isn't it? Because you're in that, and the whole world wants you to succeed when you're in it, don't they? No. <laughs> <laughs> you you like. Like to think so, but no, they don't. Quite a lot of them want you to be taken out at dawn and shot, which is what happens. Um, <laughs> so it's great fun and totally engaging, involving. The, the thing I love most of all about it was just seeing re- people who were just really good at their jobs, doing yeah. their jobs. So the dancers, obviously, but the makeup people, Gemma and the spray. How is it being spray? How is it when you're a vicar and you're spray tanned? I guess much like it is when you're anyone else being spray tanned. I love. Did being you? Spray tanned. It was a well, yeah. Maybe took the dog collar off. You didn't have an orange dog collar. I actually once there was a very, you know, at the beginning of the program, there's like hundreds of people in it. We had to be batched, and I was spray tanned with Debbie McGee. And I'm sure I'm the only vicar to have been spray tanned with Debbie McGee, but that was lovely. Well, there's the pull quote for this episode. I was spray tanned with Debbie McGee. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that in life or for quotes for a podcast. Um, well, anyone who didn't see you on Strictly, I would recommend this clip on YouTube where you come down on the pink cloud, which was a very famous clip, and then Craig Revel Horwood saying, well, all the problems began, darling, when the cloud actually landed. Uh, so that was, yeah, I know that yes. quote will haunt you to your grave, but... Um, it does make for good telly, I have to say. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Richard, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? I think, well, there have been a few, but the one I think that I would remember with most vividness was being given my first ecstasy in New York in 1988, I think it was, and going out dancing on an E for the first time. And I think by the end of it, I'd offered to educate a stranger's children in the private sector. I was so <laughs> full of love. Um, but just what you could do on a night out and how um, you could break down uh, kind of social barriers and... I loved it. That was pretty wonderful. Well, as a child of a similar vintage, I hear you. And now they're calling it MDMA, but it's still doing the same thing, I hear. Yeah, just say no, kids, of course, is what I'd say now. But um, it, it was it was a fascinating... I'm a friend of mine that's coming around this afternoon. He's a postman, and he and I met in a rave in those days. And we've been friends ever since, very devoted friends ever since since and i don't suppose we would have ever become friends or even met had it not been for that 
Well, this is a great advert for Class A's, so thank you. We'll get uh, we'll get some sort of sponsorship by uh, Columbia for the next episode. Um, but yes, it is, and that also, I guess, coincided with you when you were feeling the things you would have felt coming out and all the pain that went with that at 16. And then you don't ever feel that you belong more than when you're off your tits after um, doing an E, yeah. do you? Well, I would say the, the, the problem is it kind of wears off and you realise it's not real. And then that's when you And the come down's you know, not good after not, class A's. Yeah. And I would, I would not recommend it, but it happened. And one of the things that happened when it happened was it was mind expanding and heart expanding. And, um, and it was pretty amazing actually and from the heights of ecstasy what would you what's your favorite joke my favorite joke is what's the difference between a dachshund and a street trader go on a street trader balls out his wares on the pavement <laughs> that's totally my favorite joke we've had <laughs> so good isn't it Thank you. And I can use that one all the time. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Whose joke is that? Is that, a, do you know, from whence it hails? I think my dad told it to me when we had our first accent, Casper, in 1966. Well, that's a most excellent joke. Thank you. You see, you brought tears to my eyes about grief and about the balls of a dachshund so you're a very very good value <laughs> guest and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening Richard what would it be this too shall pass Namaste, that was the Reverend Richard Coles. And we've put links to Richard's books and his brilliant episode of The Grief Cast with Carrie Ed Lloyd in the show notes, as well as a link to Louisa Young's Namaste Motherfuckers episode, which was one of my favourites. And if you haven't read her book, He Left Early, I would really recommend it. It's a bit of a game changer, that book. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast so lovely people like you can keep on finding us. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, but not with a normal episode. Oh, no, with our bumper bonanza 100th namaste motherfucking star studded episode. So tune in for that. Oh, bliss. You know, I don't have to reach further than I could almost reach you know it was a very nice liberating feeling Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me Callie Beaton and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap I'm Callie Beaton until next time Motherfuckers <laughs>